Well, good morning. Thank you, Monica. Good morning. Sorry, you require eye, eye contact. I will remember that. Uh, that that uh, trunk or treat thing is going to be awesome. I hope that you come out and, and play along. Um, if you are fantasy football people, get your last little check in and then put that sucker away. If you're World Series people, take a breath. That was crazy last night, wasn't it? I thought these guys were going to do it, and then these guys are back in it, and then these guys. And at the very end, I was like, what just happened? That just... Did that just happen? You guys not baseball. I'm not a baseball person either. It's just the World Series for the love. You know, I just had it. Just watched a little bit of it. There's a few of you. Uh, we, are in a, we are in our own series called um, Outsider's Guide to Jesus. And last week, we talked about how we are studying, we're kind of marching through the book of Luke. And it's perfect and appropriate because Luke himself was an outsider. He was someone who didn't he didn't come up, he didn't grow up going to church or a synagogue. He didn't grow up hearing about God. In fact, he wasn't even an eyewitness. He didn't meet Jesus. He didn't know Jesus. And so 30 years after Jesus died and resurrected and went back into heaven, Luke is investigating because he wants to make sure. I mean, his life has been changed. He's, he's passionate. He believes there's this big swell. I mean, it's like, it's like not the cool thing to do, and yet lots of people are still doing it in terms of following Jesus. And so this guy named Theophilus kind of commissions him, it seems, maybe even funds him and underwrites the endeavor to go and travel around and interview people who were eyewitnesses because they were still alive. 30 years in the scope of history is nothing. It's like you doing research on the Reagan administration, right? It's just, it's so brief in the time of history. So there were still eyewitnesses who were alive and he was traveling around and he was interviewing him and he was getting the facts and he was learning everything he could. Because in that day, if you were going to follow Jesus, it cost you something. I mean, now, it, it, you know, you can make a case for it, especially in different parts of the world. But in this, in this time, it could cost you your life. It could cost you your job. It could cost you your reputation. It, could, it cost. It cost. Jesus was a revolutionary. And this, and this, this way, these people who followed, they, they, had, they had to count the cost and make good and sure that what they, believe, what they were believing, this conviction that was developing, Theophilus, wanted Luke to go out and find out more. Like, bring me more information. Can you, can you tell me more? So if you've ever felt like an outsider, if you've ever felt like, I, I, maybe I don't know all the right stuff, maybe I didn't grow up learning about this, maybe, maybe I've seen some religious stuff in my day that has made me uncomfortable, and I haven't wanted to be a, quote, insider, but I'm still secretly curious. I still feel like there must be something more. Like, if there is a God, if, if, if there's something to this Jesus, maybe I... Maybe I do want to know. And so maybe you are here today because you're doing your own little investigation. And so I'm excited about this morning in this series. I want to tell you a little bit more as we, as we look at the first few verses of Luke. I want to tell you first that Luke was Greek. He was a doctor. He was very intelligent. He did his research. And uh, he actually wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. You think, no, it's Paul. Paul wrote the most amount of books. Yes, Luke wrote the most amount of words. He wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So he has, he's a dude that's contributed a lot to our understanding of who Jesus is and who his church is. And so, you know, last week we, we launched in and I started talking about, you know, the, how 
God, this is God, and he revealed himself in this way, and then he shows up in the form of this infant God in skin, this baby born. And there were some that were like, you know, here for the first time we're exploring, and they're like, dude, I'm an outsider, and yet you just told me about this virgin birth conception thing. That's like the hardest thing for me to believe. Why are you going to lead with that? And first, I just want you to know, if you are here and you have that kind of like intellectual, you know, problem with some of these things, that's okay. And I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions. I don't have the time to do that in these, in these morning sessions. But if you have more questions than what I'm able to answer, I would love for you to seek me out, come up to me, email me. I can get you more resources. But for right now, I'm going to do what I can. Now, Luke is writing his book, and it's a biography of Jesus. There are three others, Matthew, Mark, and John. All four of them are writing biographies of Jesus, helping people understand who this Jesus was when he walked the face of the earth, that he said that he was the God of the universe, and yet he just kind of looked like a regular dude. And people have had questions about, about his book, and, uh, and we're going to get into that right now. First, chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So things have been fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled prophecy that had been around for hundreds of years. So just as they were handed down to us by those from the first who were eyewitnesses, actual eyewitnesses and servants of the word, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Two things I want you to focus in on here real briefly. The first is an orderly account. He says, I'm going to write an orderly account. Now, here's where some people get tripped up. Some people look at the, at the Gospels or at the Bible, and they think, well, there's some contradictions. This guy says it this way, and this guy doesn't say it that way. This guy says that this, this, this happened, but this guy says that this, that, and then this happened. And so there's some contradictions. I just, I, I just, can't, I just can't believe it. The reality is, in that day and age, authors did not necessarily write chronologically. So Luke is writing to Greeks, and so he emphasizes different things. Matthew, for example, is writing to Jewish people, so he puts a different emphasis on things. And sometimes he tells a story, he tells this part, then this part, then this part, or he tells this part and this part and just leaves out this part because he doesn't think it's important to his audience. And so it's not necessarily that there are contradictions. It's that they're writing for different purposes to different types of people. And so Luke is writing to Greeks, and this is his orderly account from his Greek doctor, intellectual, historical mind. The next word is certainty. I'm writing this to you, Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty, the certainty of the things you have been taught. This word certainty in Greek is asphelia, asphelia, which means like a firmness, a rootedness, a groundedness, not to trip or to stumble. So he's saying what I hope, what I hope that you'll have, what I hope that you'll get here is not, is, is not just like a cognitive understanding in a sense that, yeah, you agree or whatever. But I hope that you have a firm conviction is what Luke is hoping for. I hope, Theophilus and P.S., us, I hope that this will give you a firm conviction in your guts that you can believe and that you can follow despite what it will cost you. That you'll just know that you know that you know in your gut. He doesn't discourage Theophilus for having doubts. He says, I want you to have certainty. It's okay that you have questions and doubts. But I've done this 
so that God can reveal himself to you and you can have certainty in your guts. Now, there's a guy named Michael Novak who's an intellectual guy who, who does a lot of writing. He writes about three different types of conviction or certainty that we have. Uh, the first type of conviction is a public conviction. Public conviction is when you say, when you say with your mouth what you purport to, to believe, okay? So this is, this is when your spouse asks you, do I look fat in these jeans, right? And you, you the right answer is no. I, you look gorgeous, or if it's a dude who's asking you, you look handsome in those jeans. You look great in those jeans. Politicians are great at this. They say things, this is my conviction that I say, even though it might not be what I really believe in my gut, I'm just saying what I know will get me elected or what is right for the people that I'm, that I'm serving and representing, right? Public conviction. Private conviction is circumstantial, but it's what you believe in your mind. So this is what I actually think, but it could change with the circumstances. For instance, I think that I'm in love with this person while we're dating, and then I see her play tennis, and I'm like, nope, my, these, I, I'm going a different direction. Or I think that I'm in love. That's actually a friend of mine. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I think that I'm uh, feel this way, but then I get new information or I learn about this, and uh, the circumstances have changed, and I adjust my thinking. So it's a conviction that changes with circumstance and new information. That's a private conviction. And then the real conviction that Luke is talking about is a core conviction, something that you believe so much in your core that it influences your action, what you do. It's not just what you say. It's not just what you think and try to figure out with data but it's what you believe in your core, in your guts. This is what I do. We all believe, I hope, in gravity in our core, right? Because you are not going to go and jump off something high because you have a core conviction that gravity is legit. Even though I don't understand it completely in my head and how all the properties work, and what I, I believe it in my core, and so I act accordingly and keep my feet mostly on the ground. Doubts are okay, okay, questions are okay, but what Luke is saying is, Theophilus and friends, I hope that it goes beyond just kind of what you say and beyond what you think and kind of agree to, and it becomes a core conviction that I just can't help but believe this. And then he goes on, and this is what he wants us to know for today, this, or this is what he says and we're looking at today. The next little verses, the next little passage, it's a story starting in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, or you can call him Abijah, or you know, whatever, you know, bling it up for your, for your Sunday morning. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So you got these people, that are, they're from a good lineage, like they're from good families. He's a priest, he's a respected guy, and his wife, Elizabeth, is from a priestly family. So they, on, on paper, they look great. They're, they're, in, they're the right family, the right lineage, Verse 6, both of them were righteous in the sight of the Lord, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So not only are they from the right family, but they, they, they live right. They do right. Verse 7, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, in that day, similar in some ways to today, if you didn't have a kid, it was thought that you were out of God's favor. That God blessed people with children. That that was the primary 
sign of God's blessing is if you had children, fruitfulness, offspring. And so to not have a kid was as if to say there must be something wrong with you in this day, right? To say, well, you know, you're from this good, this good lineage and, and you, you know, you have this, this favor supposedly or, or you, you're a priest and you're doing religious stuff. You're a good person. Why hasn't God blessed you with a kid? And so these guys are very old. God had not blessed them with a kid. And year after year, they had prayed, God bless us. God, give us a kid. God, give us a kid. Decade after decade. When it says you're very old, it's not like, it's not like she's 35 and her mom's sitting her down like, hey, your biological clock's ticking. You know, I mean, you're doing great out there in the workforce, but it's uh, really time to start getting serious about this kid thing. No, they're, they're like 80. That's decades of praying and it not being answered. Decades of saying, why? Really? Decades of that month coming, month after month after month, and just being devastated. And now they're, they're, really, they're really old. Verse 8. Once Zechariah's division was on duty, so his priestly division, and he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot, which is like drawing straws, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So they did it that way so that it wasn't someone appointing and saying, hey, it's your turn to go in and burn incense. They did it that way, like drawing straws or something of the equivalent, as if to say, so today God chose you. Like in some ways you could call it luck, and they would say, no, God has appointed you for such a time. Today, this is your day. And for a priest, it might only happen once in their lifetime. So this is a, this is a big day for Zechariah. He's the one who gets to go into the temple and burn incense and have this time. And when the time came for the burning of the incense, all the assembled worshipers were outside, and they were praying outside, and they were waiting for him. So it's this big ceremonial thing. They're outside. The other priests are there, and it's, it's Zechariah's turn. He gets to go in to the temple. This is his day. He goes in. Everyone's waiting outside. And verse 11, it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. An angel of the Lord appeared. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been answered. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. So it goes on to say, This is going to be the guy who's the front runner to Jesus. Your son is going to be the one who gets the word out that Jesus is coming, that God is coming with skin on. He's going to be born. He's going to save everyone from all their sins, that everything will be forgiven, that there will be a reconnection with God because of Jesus. And your kid is the one who's going to go and prepare the way. Your kid is the one who's going to go get the word out. That's your kid. But I want you to think about those words that we just read. Your prayer has been heard. Now picture, put yourself in Zechariah's place. Maybe for some of you it's not difficult. You've been praying and asking God and begging him for decades. Please give me a kid. In this culture, it's, it's a sign of shame. Other people, 
People in our community are talking about us behind our back. They, they, they don't invite us to parties because it's awkward. And, and they, you know, you're a priest and everything, and that's great. But, but, but why can't we just have a kid? Like, we, we pray every, we've, we've been praying for all these years. I have to sit and I have to watch my wife cry month after month after month at that time of the month. And, and, and you're telling me that just now my prayer's been heard? Is there like a clog in your prayer pipe? I mean, are you taking these like one ticket at a time and responding? I understand there's probably trillions. Are you just now getting around to my prayer? Because I have been begging you and praying for years and years and years while my wife has been in so much pain and feeling so much shame. And, and now, and now the prayer is heard? And Zechariah, even though there's a stinking angel in front of him, and it's clear that he is an angel, I haven't seen that thing, but I, it's very clear to Zechariah that this is an angel. Even though this incredible moment is happening, he can't believe it. He can't believe it. Because somewhere along the line, he got shut down, and he doubted that God was for him, that God heard him, that God could do this anymore. So in verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, or he asks him, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. It's a good move on Zechariah's part not to say that my wife is old. He's, you know, he's, it's, it's a public conviction. He's, just, he's saying, my wife, she's, she looks better than me, but we are freaking old. This, how can this even be? I'm talking to an angel, but, but because of the years of pain and because of the circumstantial evidence, I can't believe it. It's too much for me to believe. I'm sorry, angel. There's, there's too much pain. There's too much, there's too much doubt at this point. I've been good and living right for all these years, and you haven't blessed me with the one thing that I have begged you for and asked you for. I can't believe you. Verse 19, the angel said to him, this is kind of funny. He's like, I'm Gabriel. I, I stand in the presence of God. You know God, God of the universe. And I have been sent by him to speak to you about this matter and tell you the good news. I'm Gabriel, dude. I mean, like, like what do you, what, do you not see what's happening here? I, I've been sent by God just now. And I'm giving you great news. How can you not believe me? And in verse 20, he says, and now you will be silent. Here's the consequence of you not believing. You will be silent and you will not be able to speak until this day happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Because you doubted, there's a consequence. You're going you're to shut your mouth <laughs> and your mouth is going to stay shut for nine months. And then in nine months, I'm going to let you talk again, okay? Because I'm, in, I'm Gabriel, and I'm standing right here, and I'm telling you that this is what God says. But because of the pain, because of the time, because he just had, he just had too much in the way of doubt, and he couldn't, he couldn't break through and believe. And so all the while, remember, there's people standing outside the temple still waiting for Zechariah to come out and do his priestly blessing. They're waiting for him to walk out after burning the incense, and there's 
smoke coming out, and this is kind of the theatrical ceremonial thing, and he comes out, and he says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he, may he make his face shine upon you. And so there's all these people that have been waiting just to get this blessing. They've been waiting a long time now. And when Zechariah finally comes out, he can't talk. So verse 21, meanwhile, the people are waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. Is there a bathroom in there? Is there a, you know, a television or what? Sudoku? Verse 22, when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. So you got to imagine Zechariah, the elderly priest, coming out and he can't talk. And somehow he conveys to them what's gone on, that there's been some kind of a sign. I mean, he's, he's doing charades for these people, and they're just like, blessing. I mean, we've been here for like a long time already. We just want the blessing. And he's just charading it up because he can't talk because he doubted this angel. And so there they are, and they finally, they get the, okay, he's, he's, he's seen a vision. And so they go, they go away and get some lunch. Verse 23, when this time of service was completed, he returned home to his wife. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor, and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, I get, I get that there are, there are things in our heads that cause us to doubt. There are questions that we have. There are things that we've seen or heard about that we just have a tough time believing. Maybe there's pieces of the Bible that we don't understand or that we still think are contradictory or whatever. Or maybe you've seen, have bad experiences, and so there's things that offend your mind, and you're just like, ah, I just have too many doubts. But what we see here is that at the root of it, at the root of our doubt is disgrace. Is shame. And for Elizabeth and for Zechariah, year after year, month after month, crying out to God, do this one thing for would you just take away this shame, the community and how we look? And, oh, and if, it's, not, it's not like I'm asking for all of this. I'm just a kid. Would you take away the shame? And after some amount of time, they stopped believing that it could happen. They started feeling like maybe God was, was distant. To the point where then Zachariah is doubting. An angel shows up and he's just like, dude, man, enough. I've, I've, I've prayed that enough. I've hoped enough. I, long enough. I, I, just, I, just can't, I just can't do it. There's, there's too much here. There's too much down here. It's not even like this. Like, you're an angel. I should be able to get my mind around believing you. But there's just, there's so much pain and shame and question at my core, and I just can't. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I want to tell you that these, that these messages, we put on a podcast, and so they're on a website at Mariners, and then they're on a podcast, so Jonathan in the back, he like uploads it, and then all of a sudden it goes to, if you subscribe to your podcast. I tell you that because 
uh, my mom listens to these messages. And, uh, and so I just want to say, Mom, I'm about to use an illustration, and I'm not mad at you, okay? Uh, it's, it's okay. Um, it's okay. This happened when I was a kid, and uh, I'm, I've forgiven you. I'm over it, and, you know, just a little bit of therapy, and you paid for it anyway, so uh, we're good. We're good. Don't be sad. Uh, when I was... When I was, like, in uh, kindergarten and I started going off to school, you know when you go off to school, now all of a sudden you can't, like, manage all the influences on the kid, right? So I went off to school, and there was some kid there who, who really, really, like, early in the fall taught me the F word and, 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 and how to, like, represent it with my middle finger. And so I was, like, in, I immediately, I don't know if it's because of the kid or because of the thing, but I immediately inside, like, knew, like, this is bad. Like, oh, yeah. and, and so I, I went home, and I immediately, this thing in me was like, I want to teach my little brother this. And so uh, I go, I'm in the, I'm in the uh, living room. Mom is in the kitchen making dinner, and I get under the dining room table, and I bring Josh, the middle brother, in, and I'm like, hey, you want to see something? Don't tell mom. And, uh, and then I teach him the F word, and I teach him how to raise his middle finger, and somehow, like, right, you know, when I'm saying the F word, mom, like, comes around the corner and hears it and looks down, sees the middle finger, and flips. She reaches down and grabs me by hair or shirt or something and drags me to my room and is like, you can't, you don't, that is wrong. You are an older brother. Your brothers will do what you do. You, you, are, you will influence them. They're, they're going to, they're, I'm going to have to go and, you know, and this is terrible. And they look up to you and... And just devastated me. And I remember thinking, like, I suck. Like, I am a terrible older brother. And, and from, you know, there was that instance. There were other instances from other people where I just felt so much pressure to, like, be the responsible one, be the example, be the standard. And so I didn't screw up very much in public. I didn't, I didn't do a lot of bad stuff that people could be seen because I knew what happened. I was a disappointment. I felt like there was something wrong with me. Like uh, there's, there's something in me that wants to do bad stuff, and yet, and yet I get punished like this. There, there's a disconnect. And so I, I tried not to do bad things that people could see or find out about. So most of my issues and my sin were inside, private, secret. A lot of it is pride or was, you know, judging other people and trying to know, oh, they do that stuff. I don't do that stuff. No, I just do secret stuff that's just as bad. And so I spent years with kind of like secret sins, lustfulness, pornography, stuff like that, because I couldn't, I couldn't mess up out here. And then, you know, you can't really have secret sins when you get married. And so the stuff gets found out a lot more easily when someone's there all the time. And so... And so it was, I mean, it was, th those issues were at, were at the root, at the core of her opting out and filing for divorce and saying I'm out. And then it takes my, my shame to a whole other level. There is something broken in me. When this person, you know, sees that or if affects them in some way, they can't handle it. And, they, and now my shame is public and now everybody knows. And I have, this, I have this divorce on my record. God, why would you let this happen to me? Why, wouldn't you, why can't you take away this sin, this desire to do bad stuff? Why wouldn't you, can't you take this away? And that shame inside caused me to doubt. It caused me to doubt God's goodness. It caused me to doubt if I deserve things. It caused me to doubt if I should be married. It caused me to doubt if I can still do ministry stuff. 
because I know what's in me. I know that there's this thing here. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is, I did something wrong. Shame is, there's something wrong with me. When we do something wrong, there's practical consequences. I, I deserve consequences for my actions. Zach, Zachariah had a consequence for his not believing the angel, and he couldn't open his mouth and talk for nine months. There are consequences for actions. But shame says that there's something wrong with you, that you don't deserve God's favor, that God doesn't hear your prayer, that God's plan for you is abandoned, that you screwed it up. And it's that lie, it's that thing that traps us and compels us to doubt. And our shame and our doubts, they're, they're really not telling us about, about God. They're telling us about ourselves and what we believe about ourselves. And so in a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to think through what, what, what is it at, at the core? I know that there's like intellectual things and things that you think about and information that you may need or, or Christians that you've seen and, uh, or, or a next step in your own faith and your journey that you just haven't been willing and ready to make. And there's things up there that maybe offend your mind, but really, really, it's somewhere in here. It's a core conviction. It's a core question that says, I, I doubt something about me. There's something about me that just, I, how could this God... I don't know. I don't get that. And I'm going to invite you to think about what that is and if you would let go of that shame today. And act first and trust that maybe, maybe, just maybe, that the faith will follow, that the truth will follow, that the insight, the understanding will follow that. Look at this next verse, John 7, 17. It says, anyone who chooses, chooses to do, to take action the will of God, will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. After you choose to do, to act, you will discover. You can't have all the answers on the front end. You have to choose to step out. I remember when I was a kid, also, my dad was, uh, was you know, we, I, me and then Josh and then Aaron, and we, we shared a room for a while, and it was bunk beds and with, like, with a trundle, and we all slept I was on the top, then Josh, and then Aaron on the trundle bed. And, and for fun, sometimes my dad would come in, and he would, he would get us going. He'd be like, all right, let's go. Jump from the top bunk. And so, you know, it was, it was kind of a scary thing to jump from the top bunk into his arms. Uh, first, step one, you checked and made sure the fan was not on. <laughs> he missed that once. And then, and, then he would, and then he would start here, like a very attainable jump, and then we would jump off, and you're like, oh, Okay. And then he would move, like, all the way outside the door and see if we could, like, get all the way there. And he would, like, swoop us up right before we hit the ground and splatted our face. And so I remember being on the top bunk and thinking to myself, this is crazy. Um, this is, you know, this is not safe. If mom were here, you know, this, uh, this would be, this, would, this is a dangerous thing. But here's the thing. My dad had never dropped me. My dad was trustworthy. He loved me more than I could understand. And he was going to make sure that I didn't fall and hurt myself. My fears, my concerns, my doubts were more about me. I wonder if we think that some of our doubts have been about God, the catcher. And really, at their core, 
They're about us, wondering if we are catch-worthy. There is a jump, a leap, and sometimes the insight, the revelation, the conviction follows as you go. There are some things that you can only know by jumping, hence a leap of faith. You might have some theories about marriage when you're single. (laughs) But they are just theories until you get married. You might have theories about serving and what it would be like, oh, if I volunteer. But until you actually show up, go to Mexico, tutor the kid down the street, show up at Trunk or Treat even if you don't have young kids, and just do a game and host a game and make it fun for other people. Invite your neighbor's kids or whatever. Until you show up and serve, you can't know God's blessing in that. You might have theories about God providing for you. You might say up here, yeah, 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 I believe everything I have is, is from God. And God, thanks for all your blessings. But until you actually give and are generous and consistently trust God in that way, you can't know that he will provide for you. You can't know that he will provide for you and bless bless you even more than what you had before. Financially, but in all kinds of ways, relationally, and just in your soul and in relationship to him. It's just theory. You have theory about hospitality until you actually open up your home and invite people in. There is a jumping out, and then the proof comes as you go. John 8, 31, the last verse. Jesus said to his people, to the people who believed in him, who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth is revealed, and freedom is found as you follow. If you're waiting to know it all, and understand it all, it's not going to happen. God reveals himself and brings truth and brings freedom as you follow him. Jesus never said, believe all my arguments and you will be saved. He said, come and follow me. And you'll get it on the way. Now, for some of us, like I said, it's beyond a mental putting pieces together. And it's a conviction that right now is wrestling with, am I catchworthy? Has God forgotten me? Does he hear my prayers? Am I somehow, am I somehow out of it? Is there, is there shame that's making me believe the wrong stuff? That's making me doubt? And you might need to, I, I, I hope that if there's shame, that you let go of that shame today. In fact, on your outlines, I gave you a tear-off. It's actually perforated, so you can have a a clean tear. And I want you to write at the bottom whatever that shame is. I want you to write it down. Because how we view ourselves taints our view of God. 
And we will be tempted to try to shrink God down because we feel small. But I want you to hear this morning that you are not defined by things that you've done or things that have happened to you. When we make bad choices, there are consequences. But it is not who you are. You are not defined by failure. You are not defined by divorce. You are not defined by infertility. You are not defined by bankruptcy or poverty. You are not defined by addiction. You are not defined by some kind of abuse. You are not defined by anxiety or illness. It's time to let those things go. And in just a second, the band's going to come and we're going to sing again. And here, what maybe you've noticed that sometimes when people sing, that they lift up their hands. And you're like, what is wrong with that person? Uh, and and he, all, all it is, is is an expression saying, God, you're really big and I just want to surrender myself and submit myself to you and just with my whole being, I want to give you honor, right? That's, that's all that is. And here's the thing. It's going to be really tough for you, if, if you raise your hand or not, you don't have to. You don't have to. But, but it's going to be tough for you to embrace or surrender to God while you're clinging on to anything else, especially shame. And so you have this piece of paper, you have this thing, and I want to encourage you to ball it up, and I want to encourage you to drop it and just let it go. If you're nervous about something behind you coming and unraveling it and seeing your, oh, then, like, put it somewhere safe and then grab it and throw it in the trash when you leave or something. But I want you to let it go. I want you to let it go, to physically feel yourself letting this thing go so that you can surrender, so that you can jump, so that you can find him ready to catch you, so that you can know, just like Elizabeth, that God has heard your prayer and that you have his favor. And even if you haven't felt an answer or if you haven't liked the answer that you've gotten, there is no shame for you. Just love. And your heavenly father says, I hear you, you have my favor, and at a time that's coming, this will all make sense. This will all be good. And you will get it. <coughs> Sometimes, though, you have to leap. Sometimes you just have to jump and trust him to bring the truth, to bring the freedom, to bring the confidence as you go. God, I pray that you would continue to speak, that you would give courage, that you would help us to release the shame that binds us, the doubts and the confusion that we have, and that we would just trust you, that you love us, that you're always there, that you hear every prayer. And even though we don't understand everything now, and even though we feel pain and questions from our past or present or whatever, that we know that you are good, that you catch us when we jump, and that you love us as we are, and that there is no shame, no condemnation in you, Help us to know that more and more, God. Continue to speak to us now as we respond back to you. In Jesus' name.